0: Well, if you're uh, kindergarten to third grade and you're going to children's church, you can dismiss out the back with Miss Melody. Um, If you're staying with us and you're a child and you'd like, there's kids' sermon notes on the back table. If you want to grab one of those and fill it out uh, and do it in the service, come see me afterwards and I'll have um, some candy uh, for you. Uh, So we're in Daniel chapter 4 today. And over the past three chapters of Daniel, we've been looking at the lives uh, primarily of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we have seen how they have shined for God in the foreign and hostile nation of Babylon. Within each of those stories, there's been a constant figure in their lives. And that is the all-powerful king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, In chapter 1 of the book of Daniel, the young Jewish boys, uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, requested to defy the king's order and eat their own food that had not been sacrificed to foreign gods, and food that followed uh, their god Yahweh's direction. At the end of the chapter, they were found to be smarter, healthier, brighter than all of the other wise men. God blessed them, and it was evidence to all, including the king. Uh, In chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar, he has a bad dream. He calls in all of his wise men, magicians, enchanters, astrologers of his court, and none of them can tell him what the dream was or what it meant. He then calls Daniel in, and God reveals the dream and the meaning to Daniel. And it was a dream that warned Nebuchadnezzar that he wasn't God and that he and his kingdom's reign would be temporary. At the end of the chapter, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged that there was something special about Daniel's God and that he could uh, do what no other God could do. He said in, uh, in chapter 2, verse 47, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. Or in other words, your God is better and higher than my God's. And in that passage, we saw the truth that there is a God in heaven and he alone is God. The God of the Bible is the only God and he is powerful, he is good, he loves and he cares about you. In chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar responds to the dream of chapter 2, to the image that God gave him of a statue with these different metals. In that dream, Nebuchadnezzar was the head of the statue and it was made of gold. So as a response to God's vision, he made an entire image of gold that looked like him and called the people to come and bow down before it. Or in other words, Nebuchadnezzar was saying to God and to the people, I am God and I am all powerful. This was a complete slap in the face of the God of the universe. So so Nebuchadnezzar gathered some one million government officials on the plains of Dura and he plays this grand music and he says, bow down in allegiance to the statue, to me and to Babylon. Three young Jewish men, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego refused to bow in the crowd and they refused to bow before the king. And so he throws them into the fiery furnace. But instead of dying instantly, the king saw them up and walking around in the fire with a mysterious fourth man Nebuchadnezzar called the son of a god. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego emerged from the fiery furnace without even a hair on their heads singed or the slightest whiff of smoke on their clothes. At the end of this, Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Praise be to the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their god, their own god. For no other god can save in this way. Or in other words, there is no other god like the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And well, after those three encounters with the god of the universe, you would think and hope that Nebuchadnezzar has figured it out. And he is ready to surrender to humble himself and follow God. But Nebuchadnezzar, like all of us, is finding the draw of God and he is unwilling to surrender. He is so full of pride. He has surrounded himself by people that tell him how great he is constantly. and He has made himself the God of his world. And the reality is, Nebuchadnezzar is a lot like us. We are all tempted to believe that we are all that matters. That we are the hero of our own personal narrative. That this world is all about me. And for Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, he is about to get knocked, uh, knocked out. He's, expect, he's about to experience humility and through that new life. And for many of us, that's our story as well. So we're in Daniel chapter 4, and we read this final showdown between, between King Nebuchadnezzar and the one true God. Verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed, performed for me. How great are His signs and how mighty His wonders. His eternal kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion uh, endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. And then I had a dream that made me afraid. Let's stop right there. I want us to see, uh, first of all, who the author of this chapter, of this account is. What we are reading in Daniel 4 is the account, the testimony of King Nebuchadnezzar. This isn't Daniel's account of the events, but this is the first-hand account of King Nebuchadnezzar's salvation story. And it begins with, I was in my palace. I had all the riches and comforts I could imagine. I was the most powerful man on the planet. But then I had a dream, and it made me afraid. Verse 5, as I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. So as we saw in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar first turns to the world's wise men. In this case, unlike in chapter 2, he tells them the dream, and yet they still cannot interpret it. Other versions say that they would not interpret it. I think would not might be the better interpretation. We're going to hear the dream in a second, and it's really a lot more straightforward than his past dream. And it's obvious that this bad, this dream is bad news for the king. It's possible they just didn't want to be the bearers of the bad news in fear for their lives. Verse 8 says, Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belshazzar after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy God is in him. So like most of us, Nebuchadnezzar turns to God as a last resort when the things of this world fail to provide answers. And so after he turns to the world's wise men, he turns to Daniel, who he knows is in relation with the one true God. We do the same thing. When trouble comes, we turn to the world for answers as opposed to God. So here comes a dream, verse 9. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. It's height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in the branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, "'Cut down the tree and trim off its branches.'" Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground and the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by the messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them, gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men of my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the Spirit, the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Belshazzar, was greatly perplexed for, his th- for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belshazzar answered, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. So before we get to the dream, we see something profoundly important here. Daniel is deeply troubled by the dream. And I don't believe he was deeply troubled because he feared for his life. But he was deeply troubled because he had compassion on the king. It seems that at this point in time, Daniel has grown to care and love the king as a person. Daniel had obeyed God's commandment we saw in Jeremiah 29 to make his home in Babylon, to pray for it, to seek its well-being and blessing. And he had learned to genuinely love and care for the person, Nebuchadnezzar. That's profound. Daniel has learned to love his neighbor. And his neighbor, as we have seen, is not the most lovable character in world history. That's our call as Christians. If we want to shine, we must seek the well-being of our world and love those around us. Daniel cared and loved for Nebuchadnezzar. Do you think about your life? Are your neighbors, those antagonistic to your worldview, are those people that you pray for and love, or are they people that you strive to conquer through debate and politics? Are your Babylonian neighbors who put the wrong campaign sign in their yard Who post offensive things on social media? Whose language offends you? Are they people to write off and conquer? Or are they people that you love, weep, and pray the best for? Paul in Philippians 3 says this. I love this passage. He says, For as I have often told you before and now tell you again with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. For their mind is set on 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 earthly things. So when Paul looks at the world and he sees their lives, sees what they're living for, sees their destruction, he doesn't glory in it, but he is filled with compassion and he weeps for them. He weeps and loves and prays that they might know true joy, peace, forgiveness, and love, which is found in Jesus alone. So we think about our lives. Do we love and weep for our neighbors, for our community? Or do we glory in their destruction and strive to conquer them through the things of this world? Or maybe we don't even care about our neighbor because we're so focused on ourselves. But Daniel had learned to care and love the king. That's profound. Verse 20, Daniel interprets the dream. He says, The tree you saw which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. King, you are that tree. You are great and you are mighty, but you are about to be humbled for your good by God, who alone is God. And God has issued his decree. Verse 24, this is the interpretation, your majesty. And this is the decree that the Most High has issued against my Lord, the King. You will be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. This is amazing. God says he will protect the stump. He will protect Nebuchadnezzar with bronze and iron. He will leave the stump of the tree, and despite your rebellion, Nebuchadnezzar, he will restore you and your kingdom when you turn to him. That's a profound promise. Verse 27, Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right, and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. So Daniel pleads with the king, repent now and do what is right, and perhaps God will allow you to prosper. God is patient with us. He is slow to anger, and he gives us every chance to repent. Friends, if you're here today and God is pulling at your heart, he is calling you to trust him, then do it. He is patient, but there comes a time, like with Nebuchadnezzar, where he will humble us. Repent and trust him today. Humble yourself before the God of the universe. But Nebuchadnezzar, like so many of us, needed to be broken before he would repent. God gave him 12 months. In that 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar had likely forgotten the dream, and then it happened. Verse 28, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, admiring the beauty of this grand city and kingdom he had built, and he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built? As the royal residence, by my, 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 by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from the people and will live like the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Nebuchadnezzar has been given multiple opportunities to humble himself, but he did not. And so for seven years, he was protected, but he lived as an oxen. He had what modern science now calls a case of boanthropy. He ate acted, and lived as a cow. He went from the most powerful man in the world to insanity in an instant. And one fascinating just side note on this, scholars have long dismissed uh, this madness as unhistorical, but there is a fascinating seven-year gap in Babylonian history from 582 B.C. to 575 B.C., and that silence is, is deafening. In a culture that would never record anything negative about themselves, there are seven years of silence in Babylonian history. Greek historian named Abonidus recorded in 268 B.C. that Nebuchadnezzar was possessed by some god, and he immediately disappeared. Those details that that corroborate the Bible are just always so fascinating, uh, to me at least. Uh, Verse 34, let's wrap up the story. At the end of that, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High, I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples on earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, this incredible account that is left to us from the king of Babylon. God, we thank you that you are a God that is sovereign and that you are mighty and that the nations sit in your hands. God, we also thank you that you are a God that is patient, uh, that that gives us the opportunity to repent and to follow you. We thank you that you are a God that will humble us to draw us to you. We thank you that you are a God that that promises and offers us forgiveness and new life and an eternity with you if we will turn and follow you. God, we thank you that you are a God that has entrusted us with the opportunity to shine for you in this world, to lead others to the hope that is in you. God, may we find our life, our future, our eternity in you alone. To your name we pray, amen. Well, this is such an incredible story because this isn't just the story of Nebuchadnezzar, but this is the, the story of mankind. This is the story of you and me. Our pride, like Nebuchadnezzar's pride, separates us from God. Our pride says to God, I don't need you. I can run my own life, and I can run it better than you. Our pride says, look what I have accomplished. Look what I have earned. Look at how good I am. Our pride says, I know best. I'm the exception. Or in the words of my two-year-old, I do it all by myself. Our pride lives as though we will live forever. As though the good times will never end. Our pride lives as if we are invincible. But the danger of our pride is not only does it make us miserable to live with, but our pride says to God, I don't need you, and it separates us from him. So that's our first point today is that my pride says I have no need for God. My pride, Nebuchadnezzar's pride, says I have no need for God, and it leaves us separated from God here on earth and for eternity. And so the first thing I want to see within this point are the two lies that we believe and that Nebuchadnezzar believed that lead us to pride. The first lie we believe is that I have accomplished all these things and in that we fail to recognize that all we have is from God. Every good thing, every resource, every skill, every tool I have is not of my own doing but is a gift from God. Verse 30, just before he, was, before he was humbled, Nebuchadnezzar says, Is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Nebuchadnezzar believed that everything he had and saw before him was because of him. He believed that he was the God of this kingdom and this world. And so God humbles him. He says to Nebuchadnezzar, You think you did all of this, but ultimately I am in charge. And when God humbles him, he can't even get out of bed on his own. Everything he has is a gift from God, and God is the one that controls it. The same is true of us. As Americans and Wyomingites, we believe the lie of the self-made man or woman. Many of us look out at what we say, and we say, I worked for everything I have. Look at what I have created by my vast power and for my majestic glory. Hopefully you don't say that uh, exactly, but that's essentially what we say. Now, I'm absolutely a believer in capitalism and the free market economy, but even the the slightest moment of self-reflection reveals that the whole self-made man thing is not entirely true. I mean, you think about it, the biggest factors that contribute to your success, we don't have any control over. We don't have control of where we were born. We don't have control of the education we receive. We don't have control of the society or culture that we are are born into. We don't have control of those things that inspired us to succeed. We don't even have control of the genes that gave rise to our talents, which were gifts to our parents. The most fundamentally determinative factors of our lives we have no control of. Now, you may have worked hard, but you were using the health and energy supplied to you by God. None of us are truly self-made men and women. We took the the gifts that God has given us and we utilized them. As Christians, this is why we talk about the word stewardship. And stewardship says that everything we have, our talents, our gifts, our resources, our job, our intelligence, they are all gifts given to us to manage and use for God's glory. They aren't gifts given to us to hold on to with a steel trap or to boast in, but they are gifts for us to utilize maximize, and use for God's glory. When we walk in pride as opposed to stewardship, we're doing what the academic world calls plagiarism. Plagiarism borrows something from someone and says that I created this. I am the sole author of it. Instead of boasting in our accomplishments, our lives should have a a giant footnote that says that it is all from God and for His glory. Pride says it's all about me, when in reality it's all from God and all about Him. The second lie that, that, that pride believes is that I am invincible, or that these good times will last forever. Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in the, in the world. Babylon was surrounded by a seemingly impenetrable wall, and he enjoyed wealth and luxury unknown to most people. If anyone should have felt secure in their, in, about their future, it was Nebuchadnezzar. But even he was quite vulnerable. But we're all prone to believing this lie. We're going to see this more next week. But it is so difficult to live with the reality that this life is temporary and that we are finite. Even in the garden, it was part of Satan's lie. He whispered to Eve, surely you will not die. Pride doesn't recognize our reality. It doesn't recognize our finiteness. It doesn't recognize our frailty. Whereas wisdom recognizes that we are but a vapor. So today you may, be heat, you may be here you may be standing on the balcony of your life admiring all that you have and all that you've accomplished. You might feel your chest puff out a little or, or maybe a lot. Or maybe you're here and you're young and you feel like nothing can stop you. You have your whole life to figure out this God thing. You, like Nebuchadnezzar, have got this life figured out. But we all know that God and life have a way of humbling us. For some of us, it's the diagnosis that pulls, puts all of life back in perspective. For others, it's seeing our children struggle or walk through something difficult or away from the faith that brings about humility in our life. For others, it's a stock market crash. It's the loss of a job, a bankruptcy, or something else that leaves us shaken and searching for answers. When it comes to pride, I always think of the Titanic. As they set out to see, the builders said, even God couldn't sink this ship. The pride of the captain said, go faster, press on when they couldn't see. And then they found an iceberg and man was humbled. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. And what we see in this story, what we experience in life is that God has the unique ability to humble the prideful. So our next point is that God humbles the prideful. God humbles the prideful. And for the fortunate God humbles the prideful in this lifetime. The Bible says that everyone will one day give an account to God for their life and that every knee will one day bow and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. That will be a time of humbling for those that don't know him. Matthew Henry in his commentary said, The mightiest men and women ever to walk the face of the earth on that final day will find themselves crumpled in a heat before the king of the universe, unable to lift their heads, For at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we can be humbled in eternity where justice and wrath and separation awaits those who never surrender in this life. Or we can be humbled in this life and surrender our lives in humility before God, before the God of the universe and enjoy his life and his forgiveness and his abundance. Like Daniel before the king in verse 27, the encouragement for each of us today is to humble ourselves, repent from our sin, and turn to God today in this life. We are all prideful sinners that have turned away from God. And yet God in His love for us sent Jesus in perfect humility to live the life, the sinless life we couldn't live and to die the death our sin deserved. Jesus took the death that my pride, my sin deserved, and He rose victorious over death and offers His life. His sinlessness, his eternal life to you and I, if we will humble ourselves, repent and turn and follow him. And so if you're here today, he waits for you with open arms to turn to him, to ask for his forgiveness and to make him Lord of your life. The Bible says if you do that, you will be forgiven. You will be made right with God and you will spend eternity with him in heaven. If you've never done that, would you do that today? Would you surrender your life and trust him today? It's quite possible that you were here or you're watching online and you, like Nebuchadnezzar, are walking through a time of great humbling. Maybe it's a health crisis, a relationship crisis, a financial crisis. Maybe you just feel overlooked at your work. Maybe you feel like you're not getting the recognition you deserve. Whatever it is, let the humbling turn you to God, and not to double down on yourself. You, like Nebuchadnezzar, are being offered a lifeline, a great gift. God is affording you the opportunity to turn to him to be forgiven, to find eternal life in Him, in this life. God didn't cut down Nebuchadnezzar or you and I today out of vengeance. But God humbles us out of love. God humbles us in this lifetime and in order to save us for eternity. Your eternity and my eternity is infinitely more important to God than your earthly kingdom. Allow your humbling to turn you to God. That leads to uh, this next phase or this next point, and that is that forgiveness and new life is available to all that will repent. Look at Nebuchadnezzar's declaration. It says, At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High, I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and then glorify the king of heaven. Because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble When Nebuchadnezzar, who was as prideful of a man who has ever walked the earth, raised his eyes towards heaven in the posture of humility and recognized who God was, he was forgiven. He was restored. God offers forgiveness, eternal life, restoration to any and all that will humbly turn to him and ask for his forgiveness. Nobody is too far, God. Nobody is too sinful. Nobody is too prideful. Nobody has done too much wrong to find forgiveness in Jesus. Jesus has died for your sins. He offers you forgiveness and new life in him, eternal life in him. Would you repent and find that today? Isn't that amazing? Nebuchadnezzar, the most prideful man that we have ever read about, humbles himself before God, and God forgives him. It's my my belief from Nebuchadnezzar's account that we will one day walk the streets of heaven alongside him. It's hard to think of too many people more unlikely to follow God in history. He had it all. He had no need for God, for God, but God in his grace humbles him in this life and it leads to his eternal salvation. Let that be an encouragement to you to share the gospel freely with all. You have no idea what God is doing in other people's lives or the plans he has for their lives. Nobody is without need for God and nobody is beyond God's forgiveness. he's the next thing we see in this passage and that is that new life leads you to share the good news. Nebuchadnezzar knows of the one true God. He experiences the power of the one true God. He experiences forgiveness in the one true God. He experiences new life in the one true God. And What does he do? He goes and he shares his story. He uses his platform to declare God's goodness, his power, and his forgiveness for all. Can you imagine just the humility from Nebuchadnezzar this took? The life change we see here, the humility it took to stand before his kingdom, before his people, and say that I, the king of the world, the most powerful man on the face of the earth, I had it all wrong. To stand before his people and say, there is a greater power than I, and you should ultimately follow him and not me. And then he writes it down for all of us to hear of his foolishness, the power of God and his restoration. There had to have been some fear as he wrote this out, but his life had been changed and he wanted others to experience it as well. And so he told his story. Friends, if you have a relationship with Jesus, then share that good news. God has given you forgiveness, new life, eternal life in him. Don't keep that good news to yourself, but share it with others. If you want to shine in your Babylon, in your world, then one of the best ways to do that is by sharing your story of forgiveness and new life in Jesus. Now, most of us, we don't have the platform of Nebuchadnezzar, but we have a platform. Share your story. Share your hope. God has given you influence, friendships, family, a platform. So share your story of hope, of life, of forgiveness, just as Nebuchadnezzar did. And I love Daniel chapter 4 because it's Nebuchadnezzar's story of faith. This isn't a theological discourse or Nebuchadnezzar's thesis on life. This is just his story of faith. If you are a follower of Jesus, then you have a story of faith. Share it with those you know. They love you. They care about you. They want to hear what's important to you. So one of the best ways you can do this is like Nebuchadnezzar, just to write your story out. Get a a piece of paper and just write it out. Who you were before Jesus. How you heard about Jesus. What Jesus has done for you. And how your life is different since knowing him. Write your story out and share your story of faith. Don't glamorize it, but just tell your story. For Nebuchadnezzar, he went from pride and arrogance. He went from believing he was God to humble and knowing that there is a true God that is so much greater than him. He saw God's faithfulness in the lives of his officials. And then he experienced experienced God and it quite literally knocked him off his feet. He met the one true God that changed his life and he found his future, his life, his forgiveness in him alone. Write out and share your story. All right, one last final point on Daniel 4 and this subject of pride and arrogance. We've been talking throughout this series on how is it that we shine in Babylon? How is it that we shine in this world? And one of the best ways we can shine as Christians is not by being prideful and arrogant, but by being humble followers of God that live for Him. And so our final point is this, humility shines in Babylon. Humility shines in this world. In a world of self-promotion and self-glory, perhaps no trait shines brighter than humility. Now, I think we at times have messed up understandings of what humility means. Humility is not self-deprecating. It doesn't deny our accomplishments or our giftings. But instead, humility recognizes who we are before God. And it recognizes that all we are is a gift from Him. Humility recognizes that it is Jesus that makes me acceptable, not the things I do, not the money I have or the accomplishments of my life. Humility recognizes that everything is a gift from God, and so I live my life for His glory, for His promotion, for His purposes, for others' benefits, and not myself. I love the word stewardship that we used earlier. But humility recognizes that we are just stewards of all that God has done for us and given us. I am a steward of my giftings, of my time, of my family, of my resources, of my job, of my talents. I am just a steward to get the most out of them for the glory of God and not me. And stewardship is not an excuse to be lazy, but it's a reason to do all that we can to maximize what we have been given for the glory of God. Jesus, in fact, tells a parable about this in Matthew 25. In this parable, the owner goes away and he trusts his money, his talents to his servants. To one, he gives five talents and man immediately puts it to work and he doubles what he has for his master. The other, he gives two talents and he puts it to work and he doubles it as well. Lastly, he gives one talent to his third servant and he goes and he hides it and it remains the same. The master encourages and celebrates the two servants that put their gifts to work and then he condemns the one who hid it. He takes that man's gift and he gives it to the other servant. God has given us giftings, resources, talents, families for us to invest in, for us to give our best to, for us to manage and grow. God has given us everything. We are to work hard to facilitate the growth of those things, and we are to do so for the master, for God's glory. And when we do that, it takes the focus off of me, and it puts it on God. It allows us to live in humility and to shine in this culture. Humility says it's all about me and what I can do or what I can offer or how brilliant I am. That's the opposite. Humility says it's not all about those things, but it's all about God. Paul in Philippians 2 says like this, he says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, any common sharing of the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Paul says humility looks not after your own interests, but instead values others above yourselves and looks to their interest. Humility is focused on God's glory in others, not your own glory in yourself. It speaks more of others in God than it does of me. If you want to look different than the world, if you want to shine in the world, if you want to attract people to you and to God, then live in this manner. This world, the church universal, has plenty of self-promoters. But if we want to shine, we live as stewards of God's gift and we value others above ourselves. Humility shines in Babylon. It shines in this world. And if this is something you struggle with, and, and I think it's, if we're honest, it's something we all struggle with, then take some steps to reorient your life around God. Maybe make a list of all that God has given you. Write it in the form of God has given me or God has blessed me with and then fill in the blank. God has given me the ability to get a job. He has given me the intellect. He has allowed me to grow up in this nation at this time. God has given me resources to meet my basic needs and beyond. God has blessed me with a family. God has blessed me with a home. God has blessed me with a 401K. God has blessed me with musical ability. God has blessed me with the gift of numbers, with words, whatever it is. Write it out. Write out all that he has given you to steward. Give thanks for those gifts. Then ask God to reveal those areas, those giftings where you have made them about about you, you have made them about me, you, made them, uh, you have been prideful. And as God reveals those areas, repent and re- begin to view all those things through the lens of his giftings as opposed to your greatness. And then from there, start to think how God might be calling you to maximize those giftings for the benefit of others and for his glory. If we can grasp this, if we can walk in humility, we will shine like stars in this world. My prayer is that we would be a church and a people that look a lot less like Nebuchadnezzar in the world's pride and more like Jesus' perfect, self-sacrificing humility. May we view all that we are and all we've been given through the lens of stewardship, using all we have for the benefit of others and the glory of God. Well, Melinda's going to come, and she's going to play for us in just a second. But I think there's a lot of different places we can be. the first place, the first question we have to ask ourselves is, do we know Jesus? Have we ever humbled ourselves and surrendered our life and followed after him? Have we ever repented and asked for his forgiveness? If the answer to that is no, then would you surrender and trust him today? And then, if you've experienced that new life like Nebuchadnezzar, would you write out your story? Would you remember your story of faith? how you heard about Jesus, what he has done for you, write it out and then share it this week. We talked about it, we all struggle with pride from time to time, but how is it that God is calling you to go from pride to stewardship and humility? If that's something you struggle with, or, or maybe you're not sure if you struggle with. Would you ask someone to that you trust about your pride? Often we have blind spots in our own lives and we don't see it. Ask someone that you know and that you love and that you trust. Is this something that I struggle with? Am I a prideful person? Often our pride is evident to everyone but us. Ask someone. If they say yes, then ask God to reveal those areas where we need to repent and turn to him. Write out what you've been given. Write out how God could use it for his glory. And then this week, go and, and give something away. Do something for someone else for God's glory and for their benefit. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you um, for who you are. We thank you for your greatness and for your gifts and for your love that we have all experienced in this life. We thank you that you love us and that you care for us. We thank you that you afford us the opportunity to repent and to turn to you. And God, my prayer is in the next few minutes as we just bow our heads and we pray and we and we deal with you, Lord, that you would reveal those areas in our lives where we need to trust you, where we need to follow you, where we need to repent. God, I pray there's someone here that, that, that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior. God, would you uh, would you reveal yourself to them? Would you draw them to you? Would you give them the courage to repent and trust you with their lives? Would you give them the courage to experience your forgiveness and your grace and your love in Jesus? So God, I pray that over the next few minutes, as we, as, we, as we reflect and as we respond and we turn to you, Lord, we pray that you would move and that you would reveal yourself and your will to us. it's your name we pray, amen. Melinda's going to play. If you'll just bow your head and pray, and just ask God to reveal what it is he has for you. Father, we thank you that you are indeed a merciful God. God, we thank you for your love and your forgiveness that you offer to us. Lord, we thank you that you sent Jesus to uh, die the death that my sin and our sin deserve. Uh, Lord, we thank you that he uh, was all-powerful and that rose victorious over death, and he offers life in him. God, I pray that you would, um, that you would allow us to humble ourselves before you, that we would find our life and, and our purpose um, and our restoration in you alone. And God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, would you give them the courage to follow you today? God, we love you, and we praise you, and in your name we pray. Amen. couple of announcements before we go. First of all, if you're new to Living Hope Church, uh, there should be a welcome card somewhere in the area of you. If you'd fill that out and put it in the back box on the back table, we'd appreciate it. It's also where you can place your tithes and offerings if you consider this your church home. Uh, And then we have small group tonight here at the church from 6 to 7. We would love for you to join us for that. If you have questions about it, you can come and talk with me. Uh, And then we have youth group and kids night that meets here at the church uh, from 6 to 7. If you have questions about that, you can come talk to me as well. We'd love to have you uh, join us for that. Thank you so much for being here today. We hope you have a wonderful week, and we hope to see you again next week.